First Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at, ba at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. We're going to spend the next little while uh, reflecting on this text together. Well, imagine this morning that you are on vacation. Doesn't that sound nice? Uh, you packed up the family Subaru. Uh, you found a cottage in the middle of nowhere. And it, it, your, your vacation takes place over a weekend. So on Sunday, you uh, Google churches in the area, you know, find a place to attend worship. You find one. This one seems good. You dutifully show up at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. or whenever they're getting started. But what's unique about the church when you arrive is not the music. They play the same hymns, the same songs that a lot of churches play. The sermon, good, not extraordinary. Children's ministry, all the usual crayons, animal crackers, all that kind of stuff. But what stands out about this, you know, fictional church is how interested they were in you. The pastors and leaders who were there, but really also the person in the pew or the chair next to you when you sat down, the, the woman who made the coffee, the young man who checked your kids into the kids' ministry, they were interested in you. They asked kind questions. They seemed to genuinely care. They weren't just spending their time and energy on the people they already knew or on their own concerns, but they really made a sincere effort to befriend you. Now, what word would you use to describe such a church? Kind? Friendly? Weird, <laughs> you know. Uh, I think the biblical word is humble. And here's why. Most of us consider humility to be a low view of oneself, to think poorly of yourself, or at least to, to downplay your strengths. But that's not exactly right. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking about yourself less. 
And as C.S. Lewis wrote, if you ever met a truly humble person, you leave a conversation with him or her, uh, not thinking, man, they were really down on themselves, they really thought poorly of themselves. That's not what you would think. Rather, you would think, I can't believe how interested they were in me. A humble person simply thinks about themselves less, and therefore, a humble church is not concerned either with promoting itself or making fun of itself. It doesn't think too much of itself. It doesn't think too little of itself. It simply doesn't think about itself that much. It thinks about others more. And in Peter's final chapter to this Asian, Turkish, largely Gentile Christian group who are suffering and persecuted and anxious about the future, he wants to talk to them about humility. He wants to talk to their leaders about being humble leaders. He wants to talk to all of them about how they walk in humility one with another and also about humility as they face off with dark and evil spiritual powers. Now, as you might imagine, calling attention to the virtue of humility feels kind of self-defeating. Like, you're not supposed to talk about it, but we're kind of talking about it. Humility is sort of one of these shy virtues, but I do think it is Peter's main message as he finishes off his letter. So we're going to consider it under three headings. First, we'll talk about humble shepherds, humble elders. Second, humble sheep. And third, humble resistance. Now, you might be surprised when when Brian read that for us that in a discussion of humility, that immediately a hierarchy or a leadership structure is assumed, really. It's not even introduced. Peter doesn't tell them to appoint elders. He simply talks to the elders they already have. But this first section really lets us know that humility doesn't mean absence of leadership, absence of hierarchy. It just has implications for whatever kind of leadership structure is in place. And so Peter has has a message for the elders of the church. And as a Presbyterian pastor, I just can't let this opportunity slip by to tell you the Greek word for elder is... Presbyteros, presbyter. Uh, So to be Presbyterian means at some level we're caring a lot about uh, the role and office of elders. But elders were were widespread in the early church. You know, they weren't weren't kind of imposed at a later date by by Rome or or the Pope or something like that. It wasn't as if power-hungry people in the church were like, hey, we need a role, a leadership thing that we can fill. No, no. Rather, you can see even here, Peter describes himself as a fellow elder. He's like, hey, I'm writing to you. I'm like one at a different place. And if you look through the New Testament, Peter, Paul, Luke, Jude, they all speak of elders as being part of the structure of the local church. We descri- do you see descriptions of, of what they do, of who they are and their character, how they get appointed, you know, all these sorts of things. We, we see delegations of elders making visits to churches. We see them praying for sick people. And in our church, Resurrection Church, we, we, uh, we follow this pattern that's found all across the New Testament. We have five men who currently serve as elders here. And so in some ways, verses 1 through 4 are addressed to the five of us by, by means of instruction, but Peter didn't write this letter just to elders. He wrote it to all the Christians, which means, yeah, it's, it's for uh, some of us, but really it's written to all of us to understand what you should expect out of an elder, the standard that, that you can hold us to. Additionally, some of you who uh, might aspire to be an elder one day, that's good. That's a noble thing. Here, you can find out some of what that means But as I said in the introduction, I do think verse 5 and even verse 6 is sort of the controlling theme of the passage, that he's trying to talk about humility in all these different areas. And so first of all, let's look at what it means for these leaders. How how do 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 you be an elder in a humble way? Well, Well, Peter says three things. First, he tells them, shepherd and exercise oversight. Then he tells them to be willing and eager in their role. And third, he tells them to be examples. Let's, let's, uh, let's look uh, at each kind of in turn. The first instruction, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. 
Now, shepherding, of course, strange metaphor for us. We don't have a lot of shepherds anymore. You know, we have factory farms or whatever. But it is a common thing in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, you go back there, they're kings, they're leaders, regularly referred to as shepherds, perhaps hearkening back to King David. Uh, in the prophetic books, there's discussion of kings and leaders being good shepherds, being bad shepherds. It talks about the Messiah who is to come. He's going to be the, the best kind of shepherd, a chief shepherd who will gather in all his people. In the New Testament, the same metaphor is picked up on. In fact, Peter, who wrote this letter to us, was given shepherding-like instructions by Jesus himself. Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. And so the exact mechanisms of what it means for an elder to shepherd people is unclear, though. (laughs) It's never really spelled out. Most writers just say, be a shepherd. And we're like, okay, well, what exactly does that mean? And I think we sometimes get into difficulty if we dive too deeply into the metaphor, if you know, we're making connections between, well, we shear sheep, and so what does that mean for discipleship? Like, sometimes the metaphor, we get a little bit lost in it, but I, I think we can say this. This metaphor teaches that elders are to care about the people they lead, to make sure they're fed and watered spiritually, to make sure that they have spiritual safety for those who might harm them. Peter is saying that just like a shepherd cares for the well-being of the flock, so an elder doesn't simply care about their own spiritual development— but they care for others. They are people set aside to make spiritual growth a priority for the church. And even in this, you can see hints of humility, can't you? If you can agree that humility is thinking about yourself less, then elders are dividing their time between thinking and caring about themselves, their own family, and also those in their charge. To care about the prayer life or the devotional life of another is a kind of humility. Um, Andrew, can you turn the mic down a little bit wherever you are? I think it's getting a little bit of feedback. Um, uh, So even as an elder shepherds, Peter's very careful to know that the the flock, the people that they are shepherding, uh, ultimately belong to God and not to the elders. Did you see that? He says, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. And if we kind of use our imaginations for a moment, perhaps we can picture uh, an enormous, sprawling flock of sheep, you know, all owned by God, yet divided into these little smaller groups and given to under-shepherds to care for. So though elders perform an important role, they do not own the church. The, the people of God have an ultimate allegiance that lies elsewhere. Resurrection Church doesn't belong to me, doesn't belong to any of the other elders. None of you, none of you belong to any of us. You know, at some point, hopefully sometime in the future, I will be called away from this church. So will the other elders by one means or another, but hopefully the church will continue because it's God's flock. It's not ours. And God, hopefully, (laughs) we prayerfully, will send other shepherds to take care of the people that are here. So the elders shepherd those given to them. But they also exercise oversight which is a different role from shepherding. Shepherds are mainly worried about health and growth and protection, but overseeing really kind of has these connotations of not just caring about individual sheep, but thinking about the whole flock. Elders are thinking about the overall direction and health of the church as a whole. They're thinking long-term, and sometimes they make short-term painful decisions so the long-term health of the church is secured. Oversight sometimes means dealing with buildings and budgets and strategic plans. Instead of like living paycheck to paycheck, a wise board of elders is giving oversight. Where is the church headed? Who are we becoming? They're trying to kind of see over the horizon, see over the next hill, so the church might be prepared for whatever is next. So elders both shepherd and oversee. But also they don't just do that. Peter says they must do that role, shepherding and overseeing, willingly 
and eagerly. Now, have you ever been around a toddler and one minute they're playing and laughing and running with their friends and then suddenly, you know, it's time to go and they mysteriously come down with this affliction. It makes their legs stop working. It makes them, you know, sprawl on the floor and, and the protestations start, I can't walk. You know, they were sprinting around the room a minute ago, but you know, please carry me, you know, I can't do it. And even if you kind of convince them, you talk to them, uh, they, they perform like the slowest walk, you know, that ever was invented. They're dragging their feet along. Peter says, look, I, I don't want the elders to be like these toddlers who are just performing their work sullenly, grumpily, dragging their feet, always making excuses. He says, that's not how it's supposed to be. If you're an elder, you're supposed to be willing and eager in that role. And that's not simply because of the added responsibility that falls on elders, but indeed, if the church is suffering persecution, as the people that Peter wrote to uh, were, it will normally fall on the leaders first. So it's sort of doubly important that an elder be willing and eager. And in contrast to that, Peter says, by the way, they shouldn't serve under compulsion, and they shouldn't serve for shameful or dishonest gain. Again, if there is persecution, an elder who's being compelled to serve, I mean, he's just not going to last. He's not going to make it. He must be there because he is called, not because he has been compelled to do so. And he shouldn't be there. He shouldn't take that role if he thinks, well, I can get some money out of this. I, I can get some favors. And maybe this is a comment on things like embezzlement or theft. That's possible. But we might view this also as a comment on an elder who takes the role because of the business contacts it will bring or a level of trust that, that he can leverage in some way. An elder should be in it to be a shepherd, an overseer, not so he can benefit financially. Note the humility angle. An elder isn't thinking about what he can gain, but what he can give. And third, Peter says an elder should be an example to the church. Now, he gives no specifications of, well, what part of life? Is it in his marriage? Is it, uh, you know, how should he be an example? So we can safely assume that Peter means any part of life, every part of life. And by the way, example does not mean perfection. It doesn't mean that you're, you're accomplished or finished. Uh, if it did, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm done with being an elder. I think the rest of us are all done with being an elders. To be an example, though, means one can look at the life of an elder and see how the gospel is working itself out in their marriage and their family life, their, their job, their devotional life. You can see how they are growing and changing, how they are displaying in increasing measure something like joy or patience or kindness. And oppositely, Peter says, elders aren't supposed to be domineering. They're not supposed to insist on, or insist on subservience from the people of God. They, they, they don't expect from the flock, from the people of God, things that they are unwilling to do themselves. An elder doesn't find any job beneath him. See, an elder's worth looking up to, even if they're kind of also trying to deflect attention away from themselves. Peter tells the churches, look for people or look for elders like this. And if you are already an elder, be an elder like this, a capable shepherd and overseer, willing and eager to do the work uh, and then being an example of a life of faith. And churches ignore those who are unwilling or greedy or domineering or immature. Now, I do want to assure you that I know the elders of our church pretty well. And they are the kind of men that Peter describes. I think if you could see what I see, if you could see their work and their effort and their hours behind the scenes, if you could see them with their wives and with their children, if you could hear them pray, if you, if you could watch them debate the meaning and interpretation of, of difficult or tricky parts of the scriptures, if you could see all the things that I see, I think you'd feel confident that they do meet the standards outlined here. I think God's given great elders to our church. 
But you know, someday in some way, we'll need some more. As we grow, as we change, or as people move away or plant churches, we're going to need some more. And by the way, if you are an elder, if you are a future elder, there is a reward for all this work. Peter says when the chief shepherd comes back, when Christ returns, there's a crown of glory in store for all the labor you've put in. But what God wants for his church are humble elders, humble shepherds. Which leads us to part two, humble sheep. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, you ever remember that Peter gave instructions to wives and husbands uh, back in chapter three. And if you remember that, the wives got like five or six verses and the husbands get like one verse. Like there's sort of like this imbalance in the, the kind of instructions he get. It's kind of a similar story here. Elders get four or five, you know, long verses. Everyone else gets one verse. And really, they just get one part of one verse. They don't even get a whole verse. Now, we can glean a couple things from the other parts of this passage, but there is basically one instruction to any non-elders. He just says, be subject to the elders. Now, you're wondering, though, well, doesn't he address in verse 5, doesn't he address his instruction only to those who are young? Perhaps, like, I'm, what if you're over 40? Do I, do I still have to obey this first or whatever? Whatever young is considered now, you know, over 50 or whatever. Uh, do, do I have to obey this verse? Maybe it's just for those who are physically younger. Well, that's technically possible. But most commentators and, you know, smart people think that when Peter says those who are younger, he just simply means not the elders. See, elder has connotations of church office, but also in general refers to older, wiser people. And so the counterpart, the natural counterpart to elder is younger. But additionally, you can also, if that wasn't convincing, think about, think about it this way. Age in the New Testament is sometimes refers to biological age, you know, how many, how many spins around the sun you've had. But, but, it doesn't, but it also sometimes refers to spiritual maturity. So it's actually quite possible that Peter here assumes that the more mature, the older have been appointed to be elders, leaving those who are younger in the faith for this section. I just think when you stack up the evidence, I think it's pretty clear. If you are not serving as an elder, you are part of this other group. You are, you are part of these youngers. Uh, and Peter expects then that you will submit to the elders. Now, subjection, submission, uh, this is the fourth time we've come across it in, in Peter's letter. If you remember, Christians were told to submit to civil authorities, servants to masters, wives to husbands, and now the church, the church people, to their elders. What does that mean? What does it mean to be subject to the elders of the church? Well, just like when we talked about wives, it does not mean complacency. It does not mean unthinking obedience. It does not mean never questioning, never disagreeing. Just like wives, just like servants, Peter expects every Christian's going to do their best. They're going to use their mind, you know, use all the gifts they have to carefully follow Christ. So if you're part of a church where the elders are sinning or the elders are being foolish, the church members don't need to blindly obey them or support them. But in general, if the elders are, are doing fine, Peter expects that church people will offer to the elders their respect, honor, and some kinds of obedience. And this, by the way, is why choosing elders is really important. Because what you're saying when you, when you vote for an elder, you, you're saying, this is a person I can submit to. This is someone I can trust. This is someone I can follow. And can you see how that takes humility? <laughs> see, to be a healthy part of the flock of God, Peter is, is telling you, you have to be able to say to yourself in your heart of hearts, my opinion is not the most important. I'll do my best, I'll give, I'll support, I'll give advice and perspective, but ultimately I will submit to those that God has called to be elders. See, the ability to think the world does not revolve around me, that's a tough place to get to. But it is the place to which you are called 
And Peter goes on in the last part of verse 6 to encourage elders and the church, shepherds and sheep, everyone, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And he gives a reason. So if you feel a little bit skeptical about how necessary it is to be humble, or maybe you're wondering, I've really seen humility abused in the church. Maybe you've decided for one reason or another, I can't, I can't do that thing again. Well, listen carefully to what Peter says. He quotes the book of Proverbs, and he says, because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Let's just think about that just for a moment. Let's say there was a church person who did insist, oh, the world should kind of revolve around me, or the church should kind of revolve around me. Let's say they were not really willing to submit to the elders, but instead used their influence or their power or their money or their force of personality or, or whatever just to try to get what they wanted in the church. Or let's say there was an elder who was greedy or manipulative or enjoyed being in power a little bit too much and kind of lorded it over everyone else. What's the problem with those situations? Well, Peter says, God is opposed to them. God's actively against them. God is not on their team. See, when an elder or when a church member walks in pride, they walk contrary to God, contrary to the cross of Christ. And as we'll see later, to refuse humility is really refusing to be like Jesus because Jesus didn't spend his time considering his own rights, but rather spent it considering the needs of others. And this, by the way, is is why, partially why, celebrity and power and fame and money are dangerous. Because in general, they lead you toward pride and away from humility. How many humble celebrities do you know? How many humble wealthy people? They're hard to find. They exist, but they're hard to find because success tends to breed pride and not humility. So if a church finds itself prideful, Peter says, God's in opposition to them, and that's a dangerous place to be. God will not let his church be prideful. He will oppose them. He will oppose those churches. He will oppose those people, and I'm not here to point any fingers. I'm just reminding me. I'm just reminding you. I'm reminding all of us how important this is that God is on the side of the humble. Okay, we got to get to part three, humble resistance. This passage kind of takes an unexpected turn in verses 6 through 8 because though humility is hard and we're like, yeah, it's hard, I feel prideful, but we kind of expect it. Human-to-human interactions, we kind of expect it. On some level, we understand elders need to be humble, the church needs to be humble. But then Peter emphasizes humility in a different realm. He tells us to be humble before God. Not before each other, not elders and people, but before God, casting all of our anxieties on him, understanding his care for us. Now, the, the smart Greek people will tell you the main verb here is, is right at the start of verse 6 where Peter tells us to humble ourselves. And a lot of what follows sort of modifies that first section. The casting of anxieties upon God is one of the ways we humble ourselves. Now, as soon as we begin to talk about anxiety, we need, that, we need to say there's a kind of anxiety that's medical and physiological or psychological and really needs to be dealt with as such. Now, really, any kind of anxiety probably has spiritual roots, spiritual tendrils or whatever, but but that sort of medical side of anxiety is not exactly what Peter's talking about, I don't think. The main kind of anxiety that that Peter wants us to cast on God is all the normal run-of-the-mill worrying and stressing and controlling we try to do. See, at some level, anxiety is trying to control something that you can't control. 
It's a refusal to trust God. It's itself a kind of pride. Whereas to humble yourself is to hand over your anxieties. Hand over the worries. And often, if you're an anxious, worrying type of person, you do it again and again and again and again. You, you continually hand them over to the good God who cares for you. And Peter reminds them there to be sober-minded and watchful. And the reason he's calling for all of this humility, this watchfulness, is because the devil, he says, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, what's interesting Peter uses this image of a lion prowling around to describe Satan and really other evil spiritual forces. And biblically, that's interesting because Jesus is also described using lion imagery, sort of like a lion versus lion situation. And I think that the sort of biblical thing that's going on here is, is Satan is often taking something good and twisting it to his own ends or, or dis, even disguising himself as good things. And instead of being a lion that defends people, Satan prowls around roaring, looking for someone to devour. Now, from my careful reading of children's books, I've learned that the roar of a lion can be heard for up to eight kilometers away and reach a a noise level of 114 decibels, which people tell me, if you were standing one meter away from a lion roaring, not a good place to be, but it could almost cause hearing damage. That's how loud it is. And eight kilometers, do you know how far eight kilometers is? If you were standing outside the gymnasium this morning and a lion was roaring at Ikea, you'd be able to hear it. Eight kilometers away. What's the purpose of a roar like that? That loud, that ferocious, that big, the purpose of a roar like that is intimidation, right? It's terrifying, it's prey, it's scaring off rivals, you know, get those hyenas out of there or whatever, maybe to make its prey do something stupid. Peter warns the believers, the dark spiritual forces, they're wandering around the world, they're doing work trying to scare you, trying to get you off your game, trying to intimidate you. Devil, demons, they're just hoping, maybe she'll do something dumb, maybe he'll do something dumb, maybe he'll get off track and we'll have a chance to destroy them. So what does humility have to do with these evil spiritual forces? It just reminds you, reminds us, you're not that strong. (laughs) In, In a spiritual battle all by yourself, you're outmatched. There's a lion on the other side. And if you get caught up thinking about yourself, focused on yourself, you're going to end up scared or intimidated, destroyed by evil spiritual forces. And God wants you to resist. And the means by which you resist is, is by humbling yourself. Relying on God, throwing all the worries, the anxieties, the fears of this life at his direction. Humble resistance, Peter is saying. That's the key to dealing with these intimidating spiritual forces. Now, the letter closes with a few personal remarks and greetings. Peter tells us that Silvanus, that's also, also sometimes called Silas, he, he was the one who probably put pen to paper as Peter dictated. And Peter and Peter's saying, this, this is the true grace. He, you know, he wrote it down accurately. This is the true grace of God. In verse 13, an unnamed woman in Babylon, and Babylon's likely a code not for the city of Babylon, but for Rome, uh, sends greetings to the Christians along with this guy named Mark, who was a young man in the faith. And I point those things out because, well, first of all, they're there, but really it shows the letter is written to and for real people in real places. Sometimes when you read the Bible, everything seems kind of foreign. Right, lately in my personal devotions, I've been in an Old Testament prophet, and, and right now, the section I'm in, it's like, it's from another world. <laughs> you know, it's like, like what, is, what does this have to do with, with my life? Like, as I'm making oatmeal for my children or something, what does this have to do with that? 
And, and like I'm, of course, on some level, you know it does, you believe it does, but it just seems far away. But this letter and the humility commanded here is for men who assist church leaders. It's for women who live in Babylon. It's for young men learning the ways of faith. It's for pastors like me. It's for congregations like you. That God wants us to walk in the ways of humility. He wants us to suffer well. He wants us to be subject to each other in the ways he's, he's commanded. Now, I've told you on and off about some of my personal struggles over the past year or so. Pandemic's been hard on lots of different people in lots of different places. And lots of you know, too, in about a month, I'm headed off on sabbatical for some needed refreshment and renewal. Because there's been some hard days. There's been some hard Sundays. There's been some hard Wednesdays. And this week... I needed verse 10, and perhaps you do too. And I want to leave you with it because I think it encapsulates not just 1 Peter, but really the whole gospel message. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does this verse tell us? It tells us God knows and sees. He sees your suffering He sees your struggles, he sees your bad days, he sees your tears, he sees your glories and your temptations, and he knows it all. And the God who has called you to be in Ottawa, to be at Resurrection Church, the God who has called you is at work right now to restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. What's the difference between all those words? I don't think it really matters. What Peter means is that God has this stuff for your life. You're weary, he's strengthening you. You're feeling shaky, he's establishing you. You're broken, he's restoring you. You're unsure, he's confirming you. And here's the thing, that that kind of self-worth, the kind of love and affirmation that, that we get from God is what gives you the strength to live a life of humility. When you become insecure about your worth, then, then life and church and, and, and whatever else, it just becomes a place to perform and to achieve. And we go to church to, to prove our worth instead of receiving our worth. Whereas the Christian gospel says identity is not achieved, but it's received. You don't restore yourself. You don't confirm yourself. You don't strengthen yourself and you don't establish yourself. God does those things to you. And that's the firm foundation that I need. It's the firm foundation we all need so we can move into our worlds, into our church with humility because we don't need to go around looking for those things from anyone or anywhere else. And so the humble Christ who went to the cross invites you to follow him into a life of thinking about yourself less. And he invites you. You realized you're proud. He invites you. Step into his forgiveness. You can start over today. So my prayer for you is this. May the God who called you restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Because it's his dominion. It's his kingdom forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful and grateful that you have called us. You are at work in us right now. Uh, you, You have put us here. You have given us all the stuff we need. May we believe the gospel. May we rely on it. And it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.